Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and for the first time on this podcast, I have two guests joining me. Today, I chat with Robert Wilsonholm, founder of Trilogy Real Estate, and his tag team partner, Lawrence Jones, Trilogy's head of asset management. In this episode, we're going to learn how Trilogy puts the customer at the center of the universe to inspire creativity and innovation in people, and ultimately drives higher yields for their investors through their own creative approach. But first, Robert shares a fascinating story about how his career in real estate has went from working in the broker world at JLL to eventually launching his own real estate development company, obviously Trilogy. Lawrence tells us how he got involved in the company, and we hear how Trilogy creates destinations people want to come work in, including the Great Northern Warehouse, a 300 million pound project up in Manchester, England, and Republic London, an innovative workplace campus in East London. Side note, I've been to Republic London a couple of times, and it just keeps getting better. Be sure to check out the link below in the show notes. Now, as this show is all about space as a service, you're going to hear how Trilogy's strategy is about providing a service to customers. Their developments are delivered as a service, not just office space. Their strategy, simply put, is service-led, and we dive into that. Now, the theme of this season is the evolution of building valuations, and Robert says office building valuers should talk to hotel valuers to standardize the investment profile of income streams from flexible and space-as-a-service footprints. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. All right, now let's go meet Robert and Lawrence. Welcome back to the Workbold podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. And today I'm talking with Robert Wilstenholm, founder of Trilogy Real Estate. Now Trilogy is a London-based real estate investment and development business with a reputation for repositioning overlooked assets in the UK, transforming them into contemporary workplaces and mixed-use destinations. You may know of their Republic London development at East India Dock, especially if you attended BizNow's Office Leasing and Development Bold Conference. What a great name for a conference. The Republic development is a four-acre workplace campus in London's Docklands developed to attract and retain London's creative and tech talent and was launched in June 2016. Trilogy is also developing the Great Northern Warehouse in Manchester, England, a 300 million pound project, which will create a residential, commercial, and leisure or leisure for my American friends quarter focused around a historic warehouse in the city center. Now, Robert, who went to school for architecture and is a chartered surveyor, has 25 years experience working on some of the most innovative or innovative developments in London. He spent 13 years as a director with JLL before moving over to development with Resolution Property and now his own company, Trilogy. Welcome the World Bowl podcast, Robert. Thanks, Caleb. It's excellent to be this service. Well, I'm I'm glad you're finally on 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 this on the show. I enjoyed my my time at Business Conference in in exploring the Republic development. Yeah, uh, but everybody listening today, we have a special treat for you. We're mixing up the format slightly because now we have two guests on this show. We're also joined by Trilogy's head of asset management, Lawrence Jones. Well, Lawrence is an asset and fund manager by trade, having spent time with ING Real Estate Investment and then CBRE Global Investors once they acquired ING. Welcome to the show, Lawrence. Thank you, Caleb. Good to be here. Great to have you on. I'm really excited about having this tag team approach today and 
I'm 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 a little bit nervous that I don't you know when I ask the questions if I if I ask the right person, but I'm going to let you two decide who answers the questions, except for this first one. You okay with that? Sure. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, this first question is actually directed at Robert, but then Lawrence, if you want to chime in afterwards, I'm happy to hear your thoughts on that. But Robert, I I think, you know, I'm really interested in your transition from the broker agent world to property development. And I think, I think our audience would like to hear the story. So could you sort of tell us how you went from JLL to the founder of Trilogy? Sure, I, I'll, I'll start by going back to architecture. Like many people when I went to university, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I was interested in the built environment, and I hadn't really heard of real estate as a profession. So I got a degree in architecture. And much to kind of the horror of my tutors at university, I found out about this profession called chartered surveying and concluded that was kind of possibly the route through to what I really wanted to do, which was to develop real estate. And that's how I went to Jones Lang. That was in 1988. And the plan was I would just spend three years there, understand the business a bit, scope around the market, work out where I'd really want to work. And something must have either gone right or wrong. I I ended up there for 14 years. I think it was over 13 years there. And obviously, I had a really good time uh, at Jones Lang principally getting to know everybody in the market. It was a great opportunity to meet the the funds, the property companies, all sorts of different people. And about three years before I left, I met through a sale of a building that I was making, these guys at Resolution, um, who'd grown out of Argent and really got on well with them. We saw a lot of things in the same way. And we were both really into the journey of reusing buildings and adapting buildings rather than necessarily needing to knock them over and, and rebuild. So that goes right the way back till kind of around 2000, I was doing that. And we, we go backwards and forwards to the States looking at buildings. And we created this concept called the loft office concept, which is adapting and reusing old industrial buildings, which seems so obvious now. But then it was it was a bit new. And when I left Jones Lang to join them, I moved from advisor to joining them. The idea was to see whether we could raise a co-mingled fund. And I'd never done that before, raising money for a real estate business. And so for the first time, rather than just selling bricks and mortar with brochures, we were having to sell ourselves with our ideas and our skills to the money of the world and, and spend a lot of time in America with my great friend, Robert Lawrence, who I learned so much from. And after a year of traipsing around the States in 2002, a guy called Alan Foreman from Yale uh, University in Diamond said, hey, you know, this is kind of funky, a bit specialist, this idea of a UK-only investment strategy. None of us Americans have ever done this, but I kind of like the idea of it. And he kind of came on board, and then following him was Harvard, and then various others for what started off as a UK-only investment strategy, repositioning and adapting buildings, it very quickly evolved into a pan-European strategy. It was very successful. We, we, we raised a lot of money. And um, I think that over time, I found myself realizing what I'd become was a pan-European fund manager rather than what I wanted to be, which was a, a property entrepreneur. And I was having to be a jack of all trades and master of none really across all these territories in the whole of Europe. And I wanted to get back to my roots, which was UK only 
playing with buildings and creating beautiful places. And so in a sort of over a period of time in a consensual way with Robert, I he kind of we agreed that when the time was right between funds, I would I would morph out and start my own thing trilogy and he continued with his pan European approach. But we remain good friends. So that, that was the story. A fascinating story and uh, everybody knows that I'm a have passionate about entrepreneurs and especially entrepreneurs in the property industry. So to hear your story on on this is is, is fantastic. And I know uh, you've spent some time working on some very iconic and uh, buildings such as the Alphabet building. And then you ha- you guys worked on the Ampersand building. And, and now you're developing not just buildings, but you're basically placemaking. So just to, to see how you, your journey into this. And now I, I do want to come bring Lawrence into this conversation here, even though I said I wasn't. <laughs> Lawrence, so obviously you come from the fund management, asset management side. Sort of what, what how did you guys come together on this? No, it's, it, it's, it's a good question. We were just reminiscing on this before the show. I mean, it was, it was kind of, for me, about 15 years in the making. I, I started off, and I'll give you a very quick potted history. I started off essentially doing some work experience at a, a niche retail agency called Dalgleish many, many years ago, and was fortunate enough to be given a, a full-time role with their central London retail agency team. And everything kind of snowballed from there. Dalgleish were bought by CBRE, which gave me another opportunity. I moved from there to CBRE Investors for the first time to gain a kind of wider perspective of, of the industry. You know, I've, I've been an agent for sort of three, four years by that point. I was keen to see what life looked like over the other side of the fence. Got qualified over at CBRE Investors, then made the move to ING Real Estate Investment Management as a senior asset manager on their listed property vehicle. So again, a chance to get a new perspective on life, work within a different environment across different sectors. Um, because I had up to that point really been a, a kind of retail specialist and dare I say a, a placemaking specialist as well. As you pointed out earlier, there was no escaping CBRE investors and I wouldn't want to, they were good people, but they bought out ING, uh, the investment management business over at ING or the real estate investment management business. And I actually subsequently moved with the same vehicle I was working on, which was spun out independently as a company called Picton and had you know, many good years there. I mean, for, to, to answer your question, why the move to Trilogy? It was predicated really on the desire to work on a, on a bigger scale. You know, I, I, Robert and I have been talking for a while. I knew his track record on really going in and, and, and transforming real estate and not only transforming it, but delivering exceptional returns to boot. So the chance to work on on that sort of larger canvas, I'd had you know, great fun and great experience and returns working on buildings. But the idea of working on entire districts and transforming them entirely, I mean, that was too good an opportunity to miss. And, and Ken, I'll just butt in from my perspective. My journey at Jones Lang and at Resolution was very heavily dominated by the office world and the world of work. And what I could see, particularly lessons learned from Alpha Beta, was the importance of what we called amenity, we might now call experience, which is really what you do on the ground floor. You know, crudely, is kind of get retailers and restaurateurs and bars and places in to give the place a vibe. And I felt that I wanted somebody who was in that world, who understood it, who could come along and be kind of the key glue to to bring that sense of experience to a place. 
Absolutely. Uh, that's great. And I, and I, I appreciate that. We, we talk a lot on the podcast about customer experience and, you know, the old way of real estate is has been focused on the making lots of money for the investor, which still needs to happen, of course. But sort of the customer has been the sort of thought of afterwards and is an afterthought. And the fact that you guys are have a whole strategy to create an experience for that customer, and that's how you make money for the investor is refreshing. But I want to I want to go into my next question because I think it's a good segue. You guys partner with from investors, you guys partner with foundations, endowments, pension funds, and you go out and develop property and provide returns to them. But if I quote your your website for a moment, it says that you're a London-based real estate investment development business. You specialize in unlocking the hidden potential of buildings through rigorously considered yet highly creative asset management strategies. In, a, in other words, you find buildings and spaces with sort of untapped potential, and you specialize in generating returns in, in these untapped, these more, I'm going to call them risky investments. So this might be a na naive question, but I understood pension funds require low-risk investments, but you guys are making big bets. Can you sort of clarify that? So it's, it's not a naive question at all, but if you really talk to the kind of investors that, that we talk to, that they have a very diversified approach uh, to real estate. And they will, for the most part, want to get their low-risk approach through diversification. And, you know, typically it will be kind of somewhere between 5 and 15% of their portfolio dedicated towards real estate, with other asset classes, particularly equities, being a major part of that. Bonds, securities, if you go to the States, there's timber is a big part of it. But then also, they also participate in higher risk entities than real estate, such as venture capital. And what they do is they apply, they look at getting a different return for each of those different risk profiles. And so from the equities market, they may look to get a kind of total return of maybe six to 8% at one end. Bonds, probably less. They regard that as safer. At the other end, venture capital, they probably want to be getting 25% returns. Real estate is seen as somewhere in the middle for a lot of them. You know, they like, they like real estate to be giving them somewhere in the kind of maybe maybe 10%. But certainly from the US, there's a lot of people who are saying, well, look, if we're going to make the move across the Atlantic to go to a new territory, we have to be compensated with that with better than ordinary returns. Otherwise, just let's just invest in the stock market or something else. So that's that's kind of the starting point for them. We would, I, I would be amazed if any uh, institutional investor looked as us, at us as their only form of investment in real estate. And, and that really is not the case. But real estate itself can provide bond-like characteristics. You know, we talk about core, core plus, value add opportunistic. I'm always a bit nervous uh, of you know, I've sat in, I've, when I was at Resolution, we used to partner with other people and I used to invest money with other people. And you always got a bit nervous about people who are just interested in being cool or creative, just for the sake of being cool or creative. And you kind of felt, well, you're worried that they haven't got giving, they aren't giving enough thought to the investor's money about how they might lose the money. And the starting point for us is we must never, ever lose money for our investors. So 
you want to start with a really well protected downside for everything you look at. And then you'll kind of layer onto that your some of your creative ideas. And, and we'll typically go from the highly creative, high risk end down to the very low create, low risk. And we usually look for somewhere that's a good blend in the middle. That's great. I'm going to come back to this topic in, in later on in the conversation, uh, but it's great to hear how your investors are sort of seeing you as a way to diversify their portfolios. So you say that more than any other real estate company, Trilogy focuses on creating places that appeal to the UK's leading talent networks. Your developments redefine the standards, creating places that thrive thanks to the interplay of knowledge, innovation, and creativity. I love all that. I, I love it. It sounds, it sounds like marketing speak a little bit, but I know it's not just marketing speak because I've been to your Republic London development. But what I want to ask you in your own words, what does talent want? I spend a lot of time actually talking to my kids. They're all in their 20s and just understanding what, what's going through their minds. And that changes over time. And I think we've gone through a fundamental change in the last two or three years. And if I went back five years ago, or, or when we were doing Shoreditch, when I made the move from Soho to Shoreditch, there was the, the, the young talent was driven by these kind of creative districts of, of the, the major cities, what we might call the hipster vibe, and repositioning old gnarly industrial buildings, kind of celebrating their industrial past. Something around that seemed to be what was going on. As we moved into Republic, which was a move to a whole new district, really, of London, a move away from Shoreditch in the same way as in New York, people moved away from meatpacking and Lower East Side across the water to Williamsburg mm -hmm. and Brooklyn. Uh, it was kind of a very similar thought process that we went through. And we said, well, actually, now what is the future? And we started to look then at discussions that were going on about amongst my kids and, and talking to other people. And people were getting much more into sustainability, social justice, and yes, creativity, they wanted creativity, but there was a move towards a much more purposeful, impactful, and thoughtful approach to life. And I think last year with the whole Greta situation, it really came to the fore. But I think somewhere between creativity, innovation, but also impact is, I would say that impact and sustainability is really the zeitgeist of the future as I see it. And, and with Republic, there's a lot of story around sustainability because of what it used to be and what you're doing with it now. Yeah. When we went there, it was kind of, it was a disaster recovery zone it, and it was a disaster. It was a soulless, empty place. We were kind of in the, we, we were overshadowed by Canary Wharf, on the wrong side of Canary Wharf, some buildings that were built in the late 80s and were kind of, yeah, they'd been occupied by disaster recovery occupiers. And our neighbours were data centres. And, and guess what? Not many people go to data centres. They're full of machines. So the challenge was, how do we create a place out of this? And we started by looking at Canary Wharf and saying, well, we've we can't compete with Canary Wharf. It does what it does so well. 
the financial services district. And in our mind's eye, it was all about steel and glass. We said, well, we've got to be the opposite to steel and glass. We've got to bring amenity to this place. We've got to bring restaurants. We've got to bring play. But what we also wanted to do, we were thinking a lot about innovation and what drives creativity. And we concluded that a big part of that was around nature. And particularly a lot of studies that we read were around nature and play, very important parts of inspiring what we would call the light bulb moments. Mm. And we thought very deeply about what kind of buildings would inspire light bulb moments. And then we started to also think about the world of work and how that's changing and predictions, kind of gloomy predictions that over the next 20 years, 50% of jobs as we know it will be done by robots and artificial intelligence. And what is the future of work for people? So we very overtly wanted to try and try and dial up human creativity and innovation. And we did that with uh, a, a big emphasis on nature. We've created water gardens with a, a lot of planting and landscaping. We went through a whole process of thinking, should we internalize this whole place and make a big atrium? And we thought, no, that this is different. We want to create this amazing kind of biodiverse campus on the edge of London and make a place that it's you would come to to work because your alternative, you can work anywhere in the world. You can work from your kitchen dining, kitchen table. You can work from the beach, work wherever you want. So this place has to offer something different. And we were slightly ahead of our time, I think, because now look, whatever he's doing, they're all working from their kitchen table or from the beach or by the side of the lake. So that was very a, a very thought through process. Uh, don't want to add anything, LJ, to that. No, I think you're 100% right. I mean, the, the, what occupiers want, and it's not just the talent, it, it, it's, it, it's occupiers in general. I mean, it's, a, it's an ever-evolving question, but what's become quite apparent, if, if, if working from home is such nirvana, which of course it isn't, why would anyone go anywhere? And I think you know, with Republic, you know, there is a, a built environment down there which which does inspire, which does encourage creativity, which does have a multitude of different work environments for people to collaborate. And if we can add on you know, the fact there is a community management program, there is a raft of entertainment, more than that as well, I think for a lot of certainly people in house shares, there's the opportunity for some sanctuary as well. I mean, I think if you can deliver an environment which provides all of it, which makes that journey worthwhile, then people will still continue to make it, albeit the question is how often. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting because historically property developers have d delivered white boxes to occupiers. And then what that occupier does with them to attract the ta right talents up to them, whatever culture or environment they want to create is up to the occupier. But you guys are taking a placemaking approach, which I love, and, and I'm just, I, I want to dive into some of, some of the things you've talked about now, because you've mentioned campus, you, you've mentioned destination. Can you talk about the dynamic atmosphere that you're bringing together to create your developments? One thing that became very apparent early on when we first started marketing, the, the kind of refurbished space and, 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 and the, 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 the finished product down at Republic, we had these incredible photos, we had incredible specification, and we were looking at the marketing material thinking something's not quite right yeah this the awe-inspiring design these creative quirks a hell of a lot to love but we just couldn't put our finger on what was missing and of course in the photos 
there actually weren't any people because ultimately you create the incredible environment, you create the infrastructure, but what it's really there to do is encourage businesses and the people that work there to flourish, to get the best out of their employees to operationally perform to their very, very maximum capacity. And it's not an easy process, I suggest, from a standing start, not at all. And a huge amount of time and investment has been made to ensure that we have got a dedicated community management program, for example, so that someone is there almost as a, a front of house service to make sure not only existing occupiers are looked after, but prospective occupiers as well. And these are the guys and girls that are curating you know, fantastic events, ensuring that there are seminars, ensuring that there are socials. And in fact, crucially to my mind, they're also ensuring that the businesses and institutions that we have done at Republic get the privacy that they want, if that's what they desire as well. I mean, yeah, the amenity we've curated down there has been another crucial factor. People, particularly, I think, with a slight sweeping generalisation, but young people, they want vibrancy, they want energy, they want something to do more than anyone else. They don't just want to hop on a train and go home. So, yeah, it was crucial that we try to secure, and in fact did secure, some great independent amenity down there as well. And you know, the responses have been been favourable. We're up to, I think, 85% occupancy now in import building. We've just launched export building. We've already got you know, 20% pre-let. It's, you know, it's great. We feel like we're, we're reaping the rewards of, of some seriously hard work. I'll add a little story. When we started off, we, we worked with Charles Armstrong at the trampery and he and I were talking about how do you start communities? How do you start civilizations? And these That's an things, excellent question, by the way. And, and and these things start very small. You know, you start with maybe one person and they invite a friend along and there's there's two and, and then those two invite two more friends and then there's four and then it builds. And, and we were talking about the analogy I, I always loved of when I used to build bonfires as a kid, if you just got lots of newspaper and scrambled it out, then a match on it and throw a big log on it, it didn't work. It would just never work. The way you get a bonfire going is you scramble up the newspaper, you light it, and you start with the smallest twigs, really small ones, and then you slowly build it up, build it up, build it up, until you can put the logs on after you've built up to bigger sticks and you get this kind of tar- this this hot inferno of community with a real solid heart to it, and so that's been the approach we've tried to adopt here. We started very small, and then added to it. Absolutely, and just to add to that, Robert, um, Kelly, you mentioned earlier the sort of the very gradual shift. Thankfully, there's been in the real estate world that you know, maybe the people that are signing contracts are in fact customers rather than just people you're taking money from, and you know, we've made a real effort to build up relationships with every single occupier down there. The, the amenity guys in particular, all of them, we, we, you know, these are people that are investing their time, their resource into our community. So absolutely, first name relation, first name term relationships with them. And yeah, that has been, I suggest, you know, a crucial part of our success. You talk about it being a campus for tech. Um, and, and innovation, but you've also taken on a number of further education tenants to my not to what I understand, could you could you explain sort of the rationale behind yeah. behind that? <laughs> well, it, I mean, when we talked about this talent pool of the future at the beginning, we we also said, well, 
we were thinking technology, really. And we were saying kind of the thing that the UK kind of lacks at the minute is Stanford or MIT, these amazing universities that are kind of that we're, we're producing the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates and all the people of the future. And wouldn't it be great if we could make this workplace of the future for the town of the future? Wouldn't it be great in the middle of that if we could have our version of that? And, and, and perhaps what that is is a coding academy, a globally recognized coding academy. And these were the dreams we were having. And we kept on talking to various universities as we've been going through the journey and, and asked them to come down and look at it. And, uh, and then when we got our public realm opened up, and uh, I think it was the guys from Global Banking School who came down first, and it was kind of amazing that they were walking around the place and just saying, I cannot believe what you've created. You've created kind of the best place we could imagine in London to position ourselves as educators. We, we want to create a business school. I think they've been looking at Ealing in West London as a place. Mm. And uh, he loved all of the, we've made these pavilions in our water gardens. So there's plenty of places for people to go out and swap ideas. And that's the kind of water cooler moment that people kind of stereotypically talk about. Well, we wanted outdoors and in, in, in our public realm. And then we have a very communal feel to our atriums with places that people can hang out. That's the whole point, just hang out there. So Global Banking School came, then Anglia Ruskin wanted to come in, and this is taking advantage of London's appeal to international students. And again, they were kind of great. They, they just fell in love with it. And they've now taken two floors, a substantial amount of space, and they're looking at taking yet another floor potentially. We then had the University of West Scotland who's come. So, and that, that's still growing. And we have, a, we have an endowment who's one of our investors, and we're talking more and more to that knowledge economy, the, the world of our British university systems, understanding the issues they're facing through this crisis, and what can Republic offer to that market. There's almost, almost a sort of a co-learning, a co-learning place, bring various different academic institutions together right on the edge of London. I think there's there's something in the future for, for us and for that industry. And we're, we're loving it. Absolutely. I think it's worth adding as well that we're you know we're actively engaged with with all of those universities that, that Robert's just mentioned to see how we can accelerate the the benefits we're feeling. I mean on on one level they've absolutely added to the vibrancy down there. It's been fantastic. But there's there's more work we can do. You know, we, Republic. Well, it was never about just the campus. It's about what else can it offer to the surrounding area. You know, we're we're surrounded by chimney pots down in Poplar. You know, what can we do to create opportunities for people further afield? You know, we have um, a charity on site called City Gateway, whose very purpose is to get you know youngsters from underprivileged background routes into the city. Well, if we can do that why can't we do that with the businesses on site as well there's a whole lot more that can be achieved rather than just putting an occupier in and, and accepting the rent you know there are great partnerships we're forging the, 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 the economic issues that they're, they're the knowledge economy universities are facing right now is really interesting you know because getting overseas students over to fill these places is harder 
with what's going on with the virus. And so there's a big focus now on how we can how they can get money through research. Yeah, you know, how do we how do they improve their income coming from research? And actually, what better place to be sitting right next to Canary Wharf, right next to the city of London, to access the you know all the capital of the world to be able to harness and build on all the innovation that's going on with these academic institutions. And that's you know where 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 academia meets money and business is something that's really interesting to us. Yeah. I really like that you're asking the questions that of, of what can you help people with? How can you help people? I, I've sort of had this echo chamber and there's a few of us that talk about commercial real estate is, you know, we, we sell a, a lot of drills when people want a hole in the wall. And, and you guys are asking, well, how, how do we help people get the hole in the wall? Or maybe it's not a hole in the wall. Maybe they want something else, but you're, you're asking about outcomes of your customers you're not trying to just sell them sell them a, a square peg. So I appreciate that. Moving into the economics and some more practical discussions of this, and, and then we're going to slide into the space as a service topic. But in regards to office space in, in your developments, what is your view on the trends towards flexibility and away from long leases? Well, I think it's, it's great. And it's exactly what's needed. It's what our customers need. And by the way, it's not everybody. You know, it, it, I think that I used to sort of say 80-20 rule. We'll, we'll, we'll almost give 20% of the space away on flexible leases to the amenity, the, to short-term office occupiers. That's fine. Uh, that helps create the place. And then what you can do is really drive the value from the 80%. I think that's now changing. And I'm more in the kind of, I know I'm at 50-50, but certainly... 60 40 with 40 percent towards flexibility and that flex space is not just about offices spaces of service it's everything you know it's it's great bars great restaurants great amenities charities things that we're doing you know even art and creatives you know be prepared to be flexible there yes you might have to value it in a different way but the hotel industry has worked very well, very happily valuing management agreements. And why can't we do that? Actually, you can get it, those income streams diversified enough so that from your perspective, you're not having a, a very kind of single bet on a single credit who's may, may or may not drop the space. If it can be diversified amongst 10, 12, 20, 30, 100, great. Why not? That's what adds to the vibrancy of the place. And when you say... Diversified, you mean the diversification of the, of the customers? Of the customers. Yep. Yeah, let's create a community. Yep. And from, from an investment perspective, the more diversified that community is, the more comfortable you can feel about giving flexibility. I think, you know, I had a question of how does space as a service fit into your strategy, but your, your strategy is, is about providing a service to your customers. And, and it feels like to me that the entire development is is not just a product. It's it is a service. So I, I don't have to ask that question. <laughs> but and you alluded to management agreements and space as a service and partnership yeah. models. And I think in uh, Lawrence, feel free to chime in. But you know, there's there's been a lot of talk about you know asset owners moving into this partnership model that you that we just talked about and on management agreements because the old way of leasing to some of the 
big players is not working because it's risky and the SPVs that are involved. Do you, I mean, do you do you have a view on on management agreements specifically? Do you do that? Do you execute them in your developments, or do you prefer the lease model? We're in, like the rest of the industry. We're we are in a kind of state of change. I think we're obviously observing the British lands and land securities and others with their own various flex models that they're going for. I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of just the management agreement. It feels a bit of a one-sided bet. Markets change, they move around, they cycle. And if you, as the landowner, are taking all of the heavy risk of the investment in the land, and you're kind of handing over full control for managing your asset to somebody else who's putting no money in and taking a significant reward for it, the the sharing of risk and rewards doesn't necessarily feel exactly right always. Yeah. And in the same way as you look at hotels, we, we, we think it's really important that when people go into a building, they have a kind of sense of place and that the owner really, really cares. But equally, you know, I don't know, I'm digressing into something slightly different here, but I was thinking about, you know, do I prefer to stay in a Hilton hotel or an intercontinental hotel? Or do I prefer to go to the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg? Or would I prefer to go to one of Tim and Kit Kemp's boutique hotels in London? I think I prefer the latter. Okay. And, and, and they tend to be more owner-operator models. And so then on that note, do, do you have a – within – your developments, do you have earmarked for a flexible co-working serviced office uh, footprint that you then will own and operate? I, I think as, as Robert alluded to earlier, I mean, we, we, we certainly wouldn't dismiss management agreements out of hand. And indeed, you know, during the early days of import coming online with a, a significant amount of vacant space available, we had some some quite advanced discussions with a number of op operators and decided not to proceed and and that wasn't predicated on on a dislike of them great great operators hugely successful in in different markets i think what felt disproportionate at the time was a level of risk and capital we were expected to in, in to put into the equation versus the potential upside and it, it, it you know after sort of much soul searching at the time, the conclusion we reached was that why not try and do it ourselves? And I would I would not want to try and ape any number of operators. But what we decided to trial was our studios at Republic concept, mm -hmm. and that was primarily based on on shortening or making the the ease of access, the ability to take space at Republic simpler. I mean, we, we live in a world now where if you can't do it on your phone, you're probably not going to bother. I think 70% of the population would take that approach to it. Yeah. Now, Studios at Republic isn't quite that simplistic, but what it does allow is for an occupier to view the space, make a phone call the very next day or a few hours later and say, I want to take it on a short form lease with flexible exits at any given time. It's fully furnished, plug and play. And yeah, it's we, we, we've had success with it. Now, 
we've actually seen that model changing slightly. We're seeing, I think it's fair to say, Robert, more demand for even smaller space than the current studios we're offering. And yeah, but there's a place in the market for for all of this. I mean, if, if there's one thing I, I do believe in, I think we as a house believe in more than ever, is that within the walls of one building, there can be a multitude of different products and sure. all of them potentially have a home. Uh, and incidentally, at the other end of the spectrum, there's two ends. There's the micro units that we're definitely we're very actively working on right now that, that LJ's alluded to. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, if you're a, a big business, you kind of want your office to be something of a temple to your own culture. And you need some, you know, we need some space where larger occupiers who've got a balance sheet, who can afford to do it, who've got a number of employees, can actually come in and do their thing. And when they do their thing, they probably do want to stay a bit longer because they've got to you know, amortize the cost of it. And they don't want their clients coming in feeling that you know, they're just taking space in somebody else's building. You know, it's got to feel like their building and they've got to be able to make it theirs. Yeah. So, so with the diversification in the, I'm going to call it an estate basically, because you've you've got multiple buildings on the on the property, you have earmarked a certain percentage of additional lease transactions versus the more flexible. I'm going to call them spec suites. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to know sort of what size range are those spec suites, but also do you aim for a certain ratio between the flex and the traditional transactions? We we kind of going along with what the market wants. Really, I, I, I put. So we, we don't, we haven't gone into it with a kind of a, 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 a strict view on what it will be. I think as we have moved through it, we can see that there is the potential for some really good demand for small units and micro units in that location, and units that don't feel like they are part of. You know, you're going in and just a small part of somebody else's brand where people can be part of kind of the whole Republic community. In terms of percentage, we are right now probably about 10% of our floor area is flex space, studio space. Can I see that increasing being more like 20% flex space and studio space? Yes, I can. Absolutely. And then another 10% is amenity, which, by the way, is equally on a flexible, you know, kind of shared risk basis often with our occupiers, turnover deals, all sorts of different ways we're, we're prepared to look at putting those deals together with people. Absolutely. And it's probably worth adding, Caleb, that, that kind of interestingly, we created the Studios at Republic concepts precisely to provide that flexibility, to allow people to be fleet of foot what we've actually seen with some of the occupiers is that they've elected to take longer leases. So fantastic. They've, they know, they know the, the all-inclusive rent they need to pay. It's a fully furnished space. Their internet is sorted. Yeah, life looks pretty good, but they've still been keen to engage in a, a longer lease commitment. What, what, out of curiosity, what, why is that? Or sort of, are they saying, I'm just thinking as, as an entrepreneur, if I could have something with ultimate flexibility, or commit to it, why would I choose to commit to it long term when I can still have it on flexible terms? No, I th it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think the, 
the, the way the world is, you know, there are still the opportunities for substantial incentive packages to take longer leases. Perhaps yeah. some of these organisations, and having spoken to them, they feel like they've found their their home, for a better phrase. You know, they're willing to make that commitment because they don't want to be anywhere else for the time being. And it, it's it's kind of it's music to our ears as landlords. I mean, I think we always saw studios as being incubators, as being the kind of the chance for new occupiers to come to site from whatever industry that might be and and trial Republic, see what it has to offer with a view to expanding and taking perhaps more conventional terms on other space. We've been surprised, delighted that actually some of these occupiers have come to us from the outset and said, no, we're willing to make a long commitment for the right incentive package. But others, you know, in growth phase, so they come to us with maybe 10 employees, they go through a first round in uh, fundraising, they raise some money, they're going to increase to 50 employees. They want a place that they can actually start to really create a, a culture that they can claim is theirs. And they want Absolutely. to have the opportunity to fit it out themselves. They want to invest the money to create their home. And, that, it, and they're making a longer term commitment. Very interesting. And I think the word flexibility when we talk about trilogy, it, it sounds like you guys are flexible in in your thinking and your strategy in, in helping your customers achieve their outcomes, no matter where on the spectrum they are and in the, in the stage of, of their company. But if, and I also like how you're following the market. You're just, you're sort of responding to what the market wants. And, you know, as we're seeing across most major markets, this shift towards space as a service and, and, and more flexible terms. And, I'm just, I think there is a lot of talk about either landlords and asset owners like yourself operating these footprints on management agreements or doing it yourselves, as you were talking about. But in either case, there's a, there's a big t- question about building valuations because, as you know, historically, the valuation is a, is a simple formula of looking at the long-term revenue coming off of committed leases and subject to the covenant strength of, of the tenant. But when we talk about these short-term and flexible, so do you agree that the valuation methodologies for, for commercial real estate needs to change to recognize revenue that's generated um, in these spaces of service footprints? Uh, sure. I think, and I think it's kind of slowly happening anyway. And again, it's just about risk and, and reward. And if a future investor is going to buy into this thing, you know, you, you make a decision. Do you want to have something let to the Bank of England for the next 20 years with RPI indexation and fine and, and you're prepared to accept a very low cap rate, very low yield for that? Then that, that's fine. For other investors, they would prefer to come into a situation which has got a very diversified income stream from a multitude of different occupiers where you can start to work the income and work your investment and improve over time by asset management initiatives, through asset management initiatives. You'll want a higher yield for it and you will judge, I think, your pricing analysis on what income has been driven from that asset for the last two or three years and your own judgments on where you think you're going to be able to push that those income characteristics over the next few years. So it's a different it's a different way of doing it. People have been valuing in this way 
in the hotel world for decades. So for values, it's not really a great change, a massive change. It's just, hey, Mr. Office Value, just go around the corner and talk to your colleague who values, who's been valuing hotels for the last 30 years, ask them how they do it, and apply the same principles. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be rocket science. Well, you make it sound so simple, Robert, and, and it just makes me think, why do we not already have this figured out already? I think that people have got too used to just, you know, we've, we've been moving over time from 25-year leases to 20 years to 15 to 10. Now we're kind of somewhere between 5 and 10 on average, aren't we? And so, and so we, we have to reflect that. And the rest of the world, frankly, never had our 25-year lease structure. So the, the rest of the world is in a very different place. I think that the U.S. is is far more advanced, there's far more flexibility, it's a very different lease structure. And slowly but surely, the UK has been moving towards the rest of the world. So I'm hoping that it won't be a problem in the long term. Okay, well, I've got one more, I think maybe a slightly lighter question for you before we move into our quick fire round and wrap it up. And that question is, what are you most optimistic about looking ahead to 2021? Well, number one, let's get through this Brexit thing, which I think most of us in the industry would rather we didn't have to get through, but now we've got to get through it. And let's get through this COVID crisis. So there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of concerns about that. But what I'm excited about is the change, the accelerated change that we're seeing. And for us as property investors, and particularly those like LJ and I, who are kind of at the more creative end, we, we love to embrace that change. That, that's an opportunity for us to, to make a living. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I just echo that. It's, it's a shame that these changes have been accelerated during such lousy or as a result of such lousy circumstances. But to see these questions being answered, how do businesses want to operate? Will they, is there a one size fits all? Absolutely not. So the opportunities that lie therein are are enormous you know the embrace of intelligent design the celebration of collaboration i think we're well positioned to continue trying to lead those trends there's a lot to be excited about excellent uh music to my ears so going into our quick fire questions i'm not sure how to do this now with two of you <laughs> so i've i've got three three questions and maybe maybe we'll rotate them if that's okay and then the last question you can both answer how does that sound go Okay, so let's start with you, Robert. Who inspires you in our industry? Yeah, number one, the talent, the young, my kids, the young people I've worked with, people like Jacob, who Jacob Loftus, who now runs General oh, yeah. who was my intern and grew to being the most fantastic, energetic guy. I learned so much from him. In terms of design and architecture, I've always been a great fan of Frank Geary. I love what Thomas Heatherwick does. And then in terms of business, Elon Musk, you know, how can you not be amazed by what that guy's doing? And then some wise heads like Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, others who you know, really think about long-term financial trends. Well, maybe when Elon gets us uh, settling in on Mars, you can have a development there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we prefer working with existing buildings. <laughs> Just uh, in the UK. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the second round. We'll do the second round. 
Fair enough. Okay. All right. LJ, Lawrence, what Hello. sort of podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest industry trends? I think from a from a property and real estate point of view, Philip Ross and the team at WorkTech put together fantastic material, whether that's the, the, the webinars, whether that's the conferences and events. I'm a big fan of WorkTech. Equally, we've got a great relationship with, with BizNow and the content they produce is fantastic. For more sort of general current affairs and money markets, I, I think Intelligence Squared and the Wake Up to Money show are fantastic. So yeah, they'd be my, my top picks. Excellent. Well, I, I like Philip as well. I'll never forget the first time I met Philip. I'll tell you that story in person one day. But where, where, where is the where is your favorite holiday destination? So who wants to go first on this one? Oh my gosh, the the one that I I'll just pile in there. I'm not a sailor really at all. I absolutely have loved floating around a boat in the Adriatic around Croatia on the islands of Croatia, and one of the reasons why I've loved that particularly is the iPhone doesn't work, the yeah. BlackBerry doesn't work, you can properly escape. So I think a holiday should be a time for proper you know, headspace and to be able to reflect and not to have the barrage of podcasts and media <laughs> and other things going on. So in some ways, anywhere that you can get away from that for a little bit is what I love. Good stuff. You speak to my heart. I love the Adriatic, although I like jumping off rocks instead of floating around on boats. Uh, how about you, Lawrence? Uh, it probably feels more more appropriate to talk about domestic holidays at the moment. So I'd, I'd suggest probably the other New Forest or or maybe the Lake District. I've got a lot of family and friends up in the northeast, so to head back up Newcastle Way and see the Lake District is always it's a bit of a homecoming, so there's a, a lot to like about it. I think internationally, anywhere in South America would be very, very nice right now. Yeah, I, I could do a Buenos Aires. I don't think there's any chance of packing a bag right at this moment in time, but in due course, all in due course. Hablas Espanol. Yeah, you probably made Susan Freeman's day when she hears this, because she lives in a new forest, and she is always talking about the ponies walk, roaming freely. Look. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you coming on. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Excellent. Well, for you listening, find out more about Trilogy on their website at trilogyproperty.com. We've included links to the developments down in the show notes below. And also be sure to connect with Robert and Lawrence on LinkedIn. We've included their information down below as well. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at podcastsyndicator.com or Brett at podcastsyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.